Chapter thirty three of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Memoirs of Chateaubriand, seventeen sixty eight to eighteen hundred, part three, by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, chapter thirty three. London from April till September, eighteen twenty two. England from Richmond to Greenwich. Excursion with Pelletier, Blenheim, Stowe, Hampton Court, Oxford, Eton College, Manners, Private and Political, Fox, Pitt, Burke, George III. Having now spoken of English writers at the period when England afforded me an asylum, it only remains for me to say something of England itself at that time, its scenery, castles, and manners and customs, private as well as political. The whole of England may perhaps be seen in the space of a dozen miles, from Richmond above London to Greenwich below it. Below London lies England, industrial and commercial, with its docks, warehouses, custom-house, foundries and ships. At every tide vessels of all sizes ascend the Thames in three divisions, the smallest first, then those of middle size, and finally the large ships, whose sails almost touch the columns of Greenwich Hospital and the windows of its festive taverns. Above London lies England, agricultural and pastoral, with its meadows, herds, country-houses, and parks, washed by the waters of the Thames, driven back by the tide, and twice in the day bathing their shrubberies and lawns. Between these two opposite points, Richmond and Greenwich, London embraces in itself all the things of this double England, in the west the aristocracy, in the east the democracy, the Tower and Westminster, limits between which the entire history of Great Britain has its centre. I passed a part of the summer of 1799 at Richmond with Christian de la Moignon, engaged on the Génie du Christianisme. I enjoyed myself with boating on the Thames and walks in the park. I could have wished that Richmond by London had been Honor Richemundiae, the Richmond of the Treaty, for in that case I should have found myself in my own country again, and thus William the Bastard made a present to Alain, Duke of Brittany, his son-in-law, of 442 lordships in England which afterwards formed the county of Richmond. Alan's successors, the Dukes of Brittany, granted these domains as fiefs to Breton Chevalier, younger sons of the families of de Rouen, de Tintaniac, de Chateaubriand, de Goyon, and de Montboucher. But in spite of my goodwill, I was obliged to seek in Yorkshire for the county of Richmond, erected into a duchy under Charles II for a bastard. Richmond on the Thames is the old sheen of Edward III. At this place, in 1377, died Edward III, that renowned king robbed by his mistress, Alice Pierce, who was no longer the Alice or Catherine of Salisbury, of the early years of the victor of Cressy. Do not love except at an age when you can be loved. Henry VIII and Elizabeth also died at Richmond. Where do not men die? Henry VIII delighted in this palace. English historians are greatly embarrassed with the character of this atrocious man. On the one hand, they cannot dissemble his tyranny, and the servility of Parliament. On the other, if they spoke too strongly against the head of the Reformation, they would condemn themselves by condemning him. Plus l'oppresseur est vil, plus l'esclave est infâme. The hill is still in Richmond Park, which served Henry the Eighth as an observatory to obtain intelligence of the execution of Anne Bullen. Henry leapt with joy at sight of the signal from the Tower of London. What a pleasure! The axe had cut in twain the delicate neck, and blooded the beautiful hair which the poet king had clasped in his fatal embrace. In the deserted park of Richmond, I watched for no homicidal signal, and should not even have wished the smallest ill to any one who might then have betrayed me. I walked in company with a few peaceable deer. 
they were accustomed to run before a pack of hounds, to stop when they were tired, and be then brought back, very lively and well pleased with the game, in a cart filled with straw. I went to Kew to see the kangaroos, ridiculous creatures, exactly the inverse of the giraffe. These innocent leaping quadrupeds people the wilds of Australia better than the mistresses of the old Duke of Queensbury people the streets of Richmond. The Thames glided past the lawn of a cottage, half hidden beneath the cedar, and sheltered by weeping willows. A newly married couple had come to spend their honeymoon in this paradise. One evening, while I was sauntering on the greensward at Twickenham, Pelletier made his appearance, holding his handkerchief to his mouth. "'What a villainous perpetual fog!' cried he, as soon as he was within hearing. "'How can you stay here?' I have made my list. Stowe, Blenheim, Hampton Court, Oxford. With your dreaming fashion, you would be in John Bull's land in Vita Materna, and see nothing. In vain I begged to be excused. I was obliged to go. In the carriage, Pelletier gave me a history of his hopes. He had relays of them. If one broke down under him, he bestrode another, and drove on. A leg on this side, a leg on that, to the end of his journey. One of these hopes, the most substantial of the number, conducted him into Bonaparte's suite. He took Napoleon by the collar, and Napoleon was foolish enough to box with him. Pelletier had James Mackintosh for his second. Convicted afterwards on his trial, he made a fresh fortune, which he squandered directly, by selling the writings belonging to the trial. Blenheim was disagreeable to me. I suffered the more from being reminded of an ancient disaster of my country, because the recollection of a recent personal insult was fresh. Some men in a boat up the Thames had seen me on the shore, and perceiving that I was a Frenchman, had begun to shout hurrah news of the naval engagement at abukir had just been received these victories of the foreigner although they might be the means of reopening the gates of france to me were hateful in my eyes nelson whom i had met several times in hyde park buried his victories at naples in the shawl of lady hamilton whilst the lazzaroni played at ball with heads the admiral died gloriously at trafalgar and his mistress miserably at calais having lost beauty, youth, and fortune, and I, whom the triumph of Abukir, thus wounded on the banks of the Thames, have seen the palms of Libya fringing the calm, solitary waters once reddened by the blood of my fellow-countrymen. The park at Stowe is celebrated for its various buildings. I preferred shady depths. The Cicerone of the place showed us in a dark ravine the imitation of a temple, the original of which I was one day to see in the brilliant valley of Cephisus beautiful paintings of the Italian school were pining in the obscurity of uninhabited chambers with closed shutters. Poor Raphael, thus prisoner in an old English castle, far from the clear sky which smiled above the Farnesina. In Hampton Court was preserved a collection of portraits of the mistresses of Charles II. Such was his prince's course when raised to the throne, after a revolution which had deprived his father of his head, and was destined to banish his race. At Slough we saw Herschel, his learned sister, and his great telescope, forty feet long. He was looking out for new planets, at which Pelletier, who kept to the seven old ones, was much amused. We remained two days in Oxford, and I was much pleased with this republic of Alfred the Great. It represented the privileged liberties and manners of learned institutions in the Middle Ages. We hurried through the twenty-five colleges, the libraries, the pictures, the museum, and the botanical garden. I turned over with extreme pleasure among the manuscripts of Worcester College, A Life of the Black Prince, written in French verse by that Prince's Herald. Oxford, without resembling them, recalled to my memory the modest colleges of Dole, Rennes, and Dinan. I had translated Grace Elegy written in a country churchyard. The curfew tolls the knell of parting day, an imitation of Dante's line, Squilat di lontano che paese il giorno 
piange casi more pelletier had early sounded the trumpet for my translation in his newspaper at sight of oxford i thought of the same poet's ode on a distant prospect of eton college ah happy hills ah pleasing shade ah fields beloved in vain where once my careless childhood strayed a stranger yet to pain i feel the gales that from ye blow o momentary bliss bestow as waving fresh their gladsome wing my weary soul they seem to soothe and redolent of joy and youth to breathe a second spring say father thames what idle progeny succeed to chase the rolling circle speed or urge the flying ball alas regardless of their doom the little victims play no sense have they of ills to come nor care beyond to-day who has not experienced the feelings and regrets expressed in these lines with all the sweetness of the muse who has not been moved at the remembrance of the sports the studies the attachments of his early years but can we bring them again to life youthful pleasures revived by memory are like ruins seen by torchlight private life of the english separated from the continent by a long war the english at the close of the last century still preserved their national manners and character there was as yet but one people in whose name the sovereignty was exercised by an aristocratic government there were but two great classes known bound together by friendly feeling and common interest the patrons and the clients that jealous class called bourgeoisie in france which is beginning to form in england did not yet exist there was nothing intervening between the rich landlords and the men living by their labour all was not yet machinery in the manufacturing business and folly in the privileged ranks on the same pavements where we now see dirty faces and men in greatcoats were then to be seen young girls in their white cloaks and little straw hats tied under the chin with a ribbon with a basket hanging on their arm in which was fruit or a book all with downcast eyes and blushing if any one looked at them england says shakespeare is a nest of swans in the midst of the waters frock coats were so little worn in london in seventeen ninety three that a lady who was weeping hot tears for the death of louis the sixteenth said to me but dear sir is it true that the poor king wore a surtout when his head was cut off the gentlemen farmers had not yet sold their patrimonies in order to live in london they still formed that independent fraction in the house of commons which in opposition to the ministry maintained ideas of liberty order and property they hunted foxes or shot pheasants in autumn ate fat geese at christmas cried vivat to roast beef complained of the present praised up the past cursed pit and war which raised the price of port wine and went to bed intoxicated to prepare for passing another day in the same way they felt quite secure that the glory of great britain would never decay as long as god save the king should be sung the rotten boroughs kept all safe the game laws remain in vigour and hares and partridges be furtively sold in the market under the names of lions and ostriches the english clergy were learned hospitable and generous they had received their french brethren with true christian charity the university of oxford had a new testament according to the roman catholic text printed and distributed to the cures on the title were inscribed these words for the use of the catholic clergy exiled in the cause of religion as regarded the higher ranks of english society i a poor and obscure exile could see but the outside on a day of reception at court or drawing-room of the princess of wales ladies passed me seated sideways in sedan-chairs their great hoops projected from the doors like the antipedium of an altar the ladies themselves 
on these altars of enormous hoop petticoats resemble madonnas or pagodas these fair dames were the daughters of others as fair who had been objects of adoration to the duc de guiche and the duc de lausanne and are now in eighteen twenty two the mothers and grandmothers of the young girls who dance in short dresses in my saloons to the music of collinet quickly springing generations of flowers political manners england of sixteen eighty eight was towards the close of the last century at the height of her glory when a poor emigre in london from seventeen ninety three to eighteen hundred i listened to the eloquence of pitt fox sheridan wilberforce grenville whitbread lauderdale and erskine now ambassador in the same place in eighteen twenty two i cannot describe my feeling of surprise when instead of the great orators whom i formerly admired i see those rise who were their subordinates at the time of my first visit the scholars in the place of the masters general ideas have penetrated into this private society but the enlightened aristocracy which stood at the helm of english affairs for a hundred and forty years exhibited to the world one of the finest and greatest societies which has done honour to mankind since the days of the roman patriciate perhaps some old family living retired in one of the counties will recognise the society which i have just delineated and regret the time the loss of which i here deplore in seventeen ninety two burke separated himself from fox their difference of opinion occurred on the french revolution which burke attacked and fox defended never did the two orators who until then had been friends display so much eloquence the whole house was affected and fox's eyes filled with tears burke took an opportunity on the discussion of the canadian bill to state his decided opinion concerning the revolution in france and the doctrines maintained by the advocates for that revolution these doctrines he stigmatized in terms of the greatest severity he alluded to the unkindness and cruelty of his friend in endeavouring to libel his life and render him odious he said he was a willing victim to the good of his country to the safety of his country he had sacrificed private friendship and party support he painted the follies iniquities cruelties and horrors of the french republicans he did not consider france as a republic no it was an anomaly in government he knew not by what name to call it it was a compound of milton's sublimely obscure and tremendous figure of death it was a shapeless monster born of hell and chaos fox having said that the loss of friends was not a necessary consequence burke cried he said he knew the result of his conduct he had done his duty at the price of his friend he warned the honourable gentlemen who were the two great rivals in the house whether they moved in the political hemisphere like two great meteors or in peaceable conjunction like brothers to preserve and cherish the british constitution to be on their guard against innovations and to save themselves from the danger of these new theories memorable epoch of the world i became acquainted with burke in the latter years of his life overwhelmed with grief at the death of his only son he had founded a school for the children of poor emigres i went with him to see what he called his nursery he looked on with pleasure at the lively gambols of this little race of strangers growing up under the paternal care of his genius on seeing the unconscious exiles leaping he said to me our boys could not do that and his eyes filled with tears he was thinking of his son departed to a longer exile pitt fox and burke are no more and the english constitution has felt the influence of the new theories an idea of the scene of which i have spoken can only be formed by those who have been witnesses of the weighty debates of parliament at this period and have heard the orators whose prophetic voices seem to announce an approaching revolution liberty 
confined within the bounds of order, seemed to struggle in Westminster against the influence of anarchical liberty, speaking from the yet bloody tribune of the convention. Pitt was tall and thin, with a gloomy, sneering expression. His language was cold, his intonation monotonous, his gestures passionless. Yet the lucidness and fluency of his ideas, and his logical reasoning, illuminated by sudden flashes of eloquence, made his abilities something extraordinary. I saw Pitt pretty often, as he walked across St. James's Park from his house on his way to the King. George Third, on his side, had perhaps just arrived from Windsor, after drinking beer from pewter pots with the farmers of the neighbourhood. He crossed the ugly courtyards of his ugly palace in a dark carriage, followed by a few horse-guards. This was the master of the kings of Europe, as five or six city merchants are masters of India. Pitt, in a black coat and brass-hilted sword, with his hat under his arm, went upstairs, two or three steps at a time. On his way he only saw a few idle emigres, and glancing disdainfully at us, passed on with a pale face and head thrown back. This great financier maintained no order in his own house. He had no regular hours for his meals or his sleep. Plunged in debt, he paid nothing, and could not make up his mind to add up a bill. A valet managed his household affairs. Ill-dressed, without pleasure, without passions, eager for power alone, he despised honours, and would be nothing but William Pitt. Lord Liverpool took me to dine at his country house in the month of June, 1822, and on the way thither pointed out to me the small house where died in poverty the son of Lord Chatham, the statesman who brought all Europe into his pay, and distributed with his own hands all the millions of the earth. George III survived Pitt, but he had lost both reason and sight. Every session, at the opening of Parliament, the ministers read to the silent and affected members a bulletin of the King's health. One day I had gone to visit Windsor, and by the gift of a few shillings, persuaded a doorkeeper to hide me where I could have a view of the King. The monarch came with his white hair and sightless eyes, wandering through his palace like King Lear, and feeling his way along the walls. He sat down before a piano whose place he knew, and played some fragments of one of Handel's sonatas, a beautiful end for old England. End of chapter 33